Joshua Cheney Guimond was a 20-year-old student at St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota. On the night of November 9, 2002, he was playing cards with his friends in their room. Around 11 p.m. he left, his friends thinking he went back to his own dorm. He was never seen again. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. This is part two of a conversation that I had with Patrick Marker from behind the Pine Curtain regarding the disappearance of Joshua Guimond. In part one, which you can find on Podomatic and iTunes, I'd love for you to subscribe to the show at both locations. We had finished the conversation with Patrick talking about what had gone on in October 2002, a month before Joshua disappeared, in which St. John's had to finally admit that sexual abuse had happened on their campus and had to do it in a very public way. And Patrick and I discussed how that might have had something to do with Joshua disappearing a month later, given that Joshua seemed to be doing his own research into what had been going on at St. John's all those years. I now give you part two of our conversation between myself and Patrick Marker from behind the Pine Curtain. And the review board that was being named. And there were monks on campus who were furious with what decisions were being made for them and by the the attorneys. Mm -hmm. And they wanted nothing to do with it. There were monks who threatened to quit the monastery because of this latest settlement. That the monk, that the abbot had overstepped his bounds and that, that uh, you know, this wasn't the answer. And that their rights had been violated. So there were monks on campus who were furious. With, this, with this October tw uh, 2002 decision. Correct. Okay. And then a month later, Josh disappears out on a Saturday night, playing cards with his buddies, just ups and disappears. They think he's going back to his dorm, or they think he's going to the bathroom. They decide that he probably went back to his dorm, being that he doesn't come back, and then he's never been seen since. Um, were you happy? I mean, you know... Uh, do you think that the search – we don't have to go into all the specifics and the days and everything, but do you think that there was an adequate enough search done on the St. John's campus after he disappeared? Well, no, I don't. I mean okay. I, I, I don't think there was an adequate enough search done on campus or the investigation regarding his disappearance was handled appropriately. It, it, you know, when when the law enforcement calls back to the dorm room and asks for the password for a student's computer, I mean, in 2002, if you are a police investigator and you need a password to see what was happening on somebody's computer, you don't know much about computers. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just, first of all... Um, there, there were there were missteps along the way. There were mm -hmm. people who weren't interviewed. There were people that, you know, there were things that were going on. And we know that Joshua's hard drive was, things were deleted from it, that it was whitewashed. I think that was the name of the program. But we, we know that his computer was used and tampered with uh, the night he disappeared and into the following days. We knew that, the, you know, everybody, I can't say everybody, mm. there was evidence of, fake IDs being made. There was, mm -hmm. you know, there were delays and, you know, the... Mm. I guess what it's safe to say, if somebody 
went to his computer and deleted stuff, obviously it wasn't the person who was involved with the fake ID stuff because that stuff was still there. Well, it was recovered. Though. It was I recovered, it yeah. Was, yeah, I believe it was deleted, but it was recovered. Some of that stuff was... was mm-hmm. yeah. But very well but, could have been done by Josh himself at some point. No, because it was done, a lot of the things that were deleted were deleted in the hours after he disappeared. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. In the days after he disappeared. So, it, it, I think the thing that bothers me the most, especially more recently, is we've learned what was and wasn't done in the disappearance of Jacob Wetterling. Right. If you hold that same spotlight to law enforcement and you look at the Joshua Gimone disappearance, I think it's safe to say that Again, in hindsight being 2020, that mistakes were made and things that should have been done weren't done uh, with regard to Joshua. Now, what just for the for the listeners is what Pat is talking about is that Jacob Wetterling's the the police that were investigating his original disappearance in 1989 is the same coincidentally the same police department that has investigated Josh Guiman's disappearance. Right. So 1989. Sorry, I'll do that again. Right. So in 1999, Jacob Wetterling disappears, and the, the law enforcement agency, one of them, in fact, the first on the scene is the Stearns County Sheriff, and it's now well documented that mistakes were made in that investigation, and you would hope that that they would have gotten better at their craft, and that that they would have some advances and some understanding of investigative techniques and what needed to be done when someone went missing. But now we're, you know, 13 years later in 2002 and Joshua Gimon disappears from campus. Mm. And, you know, when we, when, as we've gone, when, as we've looked at who was, wasn't uh, interviewed, who was you know, which questions were asked, what happened with the hard drive, what happened with his personal belongings. And we examined who had access to him that night and who was interviewed with regard to his disappearance. Hmm. I, I think that history will show at some point that mistakes, like in the Jacob Wetterling disappearance, hmm. Mistakes were made, and I believe that when the case is examined and people are questioned, or even had they been questioned, that we would that that there were pieces of this puzzle that were missed, and because they were missed, we may never solve the case. I mean, My. the public, few members of the public, very few members of the St. John's community, and I don't even think law enforcement is aware that the faculty resident at the housing area where Joshua was playing cards mm-hmm. and the faculty resident at the dorm where Joshua was heading were both staffed by credibly accused monks. So you have Josh leaving a building and that building their faculty resident resident is a credibly accused mm-hmm. monk. And he's going across campus and he's going to show up at a, at a place where he's lived for at least that year, and I believe the year before, but at least that year, he's he's in the presence and is, is being overseen by a monk who is also credibly accused. So just that night, you've got two locations going from and he's going to and both both of them are staffed by monks who've been credibly accused of misconduct. And I would bet most everything that I have that neither of those two monks were appropriately interrogated by the police. And we know a lot of this, just once again for the listeners and the record, is because we know a lot of these missteps in the Jacob Wetterling case because a recent uh, episode of the new show, In the Dark, that is covering all of that. In the second episode, they talk about how the police basically fumbled the investigation from the day it happened. And the the Jacob Wetterling case could have been solved in 1989, possibly. Well, worse than that, it could have been prevented. And that's something that we look look at in the Joshua Gimon case. If you're going to staff a, a student housing 
uh, complex with a and the person that's over, going to oversee it is a credibly accused monk. And you're going to staff another student housing complex with another monk who is credibly accused. You run the risk of missteps and um, additional misconduct. And I'm not saying that either of these two men took Joshua that night or did something that led to his disappearance. But I'm also saying that we don't know what their story was that night. And what's frustrated me the most about the law enforcement in that community and in that area is the lack of oversight and the lack of seriousness paid to the um, horrendous acts of misconduct that have taken place there over the last several decades. And when something like Joshua occurs, when Josh disappears in 2002, mm -hmm to not look at the history of St. John's and say, we might have an issue here that's bigger than just a student walking from point A to point B and he disappears. If you understand the history and you respect the history, you have to look at who had access to him that night. And two of the people that had access to him because of their jobs are credibly accused monks. Mm -hmm. They had to have been looked at. Don't believe they were. We don't know their story. We don't know the truth. Being that you've been covering this for so long, since obviously since the early 90s, and have been trying to you know, get all of this stuff on the record so more people know about St. John's University, do you remember where you were in 2002 when you heard about this disappearance? And what did you think happened? At the time, but not necessarily now, but at the time, what was your knee-jerk reaction? Do you remember it? I do, and I, I actually spoke with one of the law enforcement uh, a deputy for the Stearns County Sheriff, and, and I asked him, and I asked, what, what do you think happened? And he said, you know, he made me answer first. He said, what do you think happened? And I said, I think one of the monks uh, probably was drinking. There's a long history of, of alcohol abuse. Uh, documented in an, in an incredible letter uh, article that was written in 1981. Uh, we can get back to that, but there was, mm -hmm. a, there was there's a long history of alcohol on campus by the monks. Mm. And uh, I suggested that one of the monks um, had too much to drink that night, probably or could have hit Joshua with one of the vehicles, you know, the Abbey's fleet of vehicles. And because of the long history of misconduct on campus, they could not afford black mark against them. Mm -hmm. And the decision was made to cover it up, as they've covered up so many other crimes, so easily on campus. Especially given that a month before that, they had said it's a whole new St. John's University. And they were lauded in the papers TV for doing the right thing, and that the, the, this abbot, the leader, the monastery had taken this this really a leadership, strong leadership position regarding sexual abuse, and was made to look like a saint almost. Um, and they just couldn't they couldn't handle bad publicity anymore, yeah. and so it was easier in my mind to cover up. So that was my first thought. Mm -hmm. my, this day and what we just spoke about where he had one um, left a building that was being overseen by one perpetrator monk was heading to another building that was overseen by a second perpetrator monk I don't believe that my story is regarding the possibility that two men might have had something to do with it mm-hmm my theory that a monk who was drinking could have hit him with a vehicle, those my theory still works because both of those men have drinking problems. So, mm -hmm. And everyone should know, and I would urge you all who are listening to this to check out, obviously if you don't live in the area of Collegeville, but if you can check it out on Google Maps, you know, that's – 
it's a little bit of a windy walk from one of those buildings to the other one. You have to go out around that lake and go across that bridge and go right along that road that leads right into the center of campus. And you could see on a, you know, on a late Saturday night, if it's dark, somebody who's been drinking a little bit could easily hit a pedestrian, you know, to me. You know, it's amazing, sure. amazing to me that after all these years that they haven't built like a, a walking bridge across that lake or something, being that you have to go so far around, you know, to get to campus if you're at one of those other dorms. It's not, it's not a, uh, it's not a, it's, walk. it certainly wasn't then. And it, being yeah. it was dark and, you know, it's, yeah. you know, we don't know what Josh was wearing. We don't know mm. if he even, you know, we don't know what happened to him, so we don't even know if he made it to the bridge. Right, uh, right. But certainly, but certainly, on that campus, there are plenty of roads that use better sidewalks, especially at that time, and better lighting. And a lot of those improvements have been made. Yeah. But you know, it, the theory of uh, Joshua being hit by a car and having that crime covered up—that's. You know, that's that's a theory. That's just it's a theory. It's just theories. a theory. It's just a theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's 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 one of many. And it's one that, you know, I would love to I, I would love to rule it out. But I'd yeah. love to rule everything out. I, th I think we've spent 14 years um, speculating and the speculation has to end. But I think in order and what we've it, when I met with a member of Joshua's family this past weekend, what we agreed to was that the speculation has to end. Mm -hmm. One way to end the speculation is to actually put the theories out there. So Joshua's website will soon be updated to include the theories as to what could have happened That's to him so that somebody who has information about this case will Google his name, look at the theories, and say, hey, either theory seven is what happened, and I want to, I feel comfortable enough now to come forward because somebody's already thought of it. Or they'll look at the nine theories and they'll say, yeah, but you didn't think about theory 10, and this is what really happened. We're hoping that by putting the theories out there, we can, it, it, they're all speculation, but mm -hmm. we, want to, we want to document the speculation so that we can end the speculation. Because the, the thing that I despise the most and has wasted so much of my time over the years is just idle mm -hmm. speculation that goes nowhere. Right. And so, you know, when I agreed to talk with you, I, 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 yeah. I do want to put out there a few of these theories because it's important for people to realize that we really don't know what happened. We do know that Josh was interested in sexual abuse on campus. We do know that he sought justice. We knew we know that he was a fair kid. And he was very well liked and respected. We know that he had friends. We know that he enjoyed, he liked to drink, that he liked to smoke cigars, and that he liked to have a blast. And sometimes did it in excess. Mm -hmm. So he was a loyal friend, and he cared about other people, and... He had career aspirations. You know, he wanted to do something with his life. And that was stopped in November of 2002. And there are a lot of people who care about this story and care about finding an answer so that, you know, his legacy, you know, it could be properly documented. You mentioned uh, run, uh, meeting his parents this past weekend. And by the way, we are doing this interview on September 21st. Uh, but this past weekend, you met them. How are they doing? Um, you know, uh, uh, it's been 14 years. I, I know, you know, being that I've talked to parents recently of lost parent or lost children to disappearances. Um, how are the how are the the Guimans doing these days? So this past weekend, I met with uh, Grandpa Bob, Grandpa Bob Gimon, and I had the opportunity over the last 14 years to have many conversations with him and meet in person with him on many occasions. And he's a fantastic man, and he's, he's really taking this, um, the disappearance of his, his grandson um, as a personal mission. He, he wants to find Joshua, obviously. And he would like to do it, 
you know, he's, he's getting up there in age, and as is his wife and other members of the family, and, and they just want some answers. Mm-hmm. And what happened this past weekend, we actually decided to get together because of the recent um, exposure that the law enforcement in Stearns County has received and wanted to really see what we could do to put the spotlight back on Joshua's case and perhaps the spotlight on the environment at St. John's and put the spotlight on law enforcement and really look at what everybody can do. What what can we do as people concerned about Joshua's disappearance? What can we do as far as that relates to sexual abuse and other misconduct on campus? And what can we do to push the law enforcement to, to do the right thing, um, to assist with this case? Um, as far as how are they doing, mm-hmm. you know, you lost you lost your buddy 14 years ago. Yeah. You know, yeah. parts of the family believe he's still alive, um, or I should say, members of the family. Some members of the family believe that Josh is still alive. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's it's amazing what time can do. I mean, when you don't have answers, you're willing to turn to different resources to find those answers whether it be psychics or ESP or, uh, you know, early on and even more recently I've heard about, you know, dowsing, dowsing rods and magnets and answers which come from things that, you know, normally we don't find answers about missing kids um, using these techniques. But when a family has spent so long and has had so few answers, I mean, no answers at all he leaves point a and he doesn't show up at point b and there's nothing in between to say this might have happened and so you they hope you know it's 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 uh now i just don't have my wetterling quote here but you know it's like patty wetterling said recently you know she said for us jake was alive until we found him yeah and the guimones have to be certainly are thinking the same thing. I mean, the hope is there. They want him to be alive, but as time passes and no contact is made, certainly the worst case is crossing their mind. And if if if, if a psychic or a similar technique says that he's still alive and can give them hope, you know, they probably are going to listen to that. Yeah. You know, this, remi- so. this reminds me so much of my conversation that I had with Kelly Murphy, the mother of Jason Tolkowski, who, of course, started Project Jason. She appeared on a recent episode of my show, and in her son's case, it's very much the same thing, that he was here one second, was walking from his house to the local high school to get a ride, and somewhere in between, he just disappeared. And his right. was in broad daylight on a, a Tuesday or a Wednesday. With no, you know, sexual abuse claims all around in that area or anything like that. So, I, I, I totally hear what you're saying, and I, you know, I, I understand um, what the family's saying as well. But then, when you add up everything that was <coughs> happening at the time or has happened in those locations, and we know that St. John's has a long, dark, I wanted to say, rich history of sexual abuse on campus it has been home to dozens and dozens of pedophile and sexual deviants Mm -hmm. we don't know which one of those how many of them were on campus that night or josh might have run into previously we know that in the area there has been cult activity we know in the area there have been rings of pedophiles we know in the in the ring in the area that there have been disappearances, you know, until mm-hmm. recently unsolved. Mm-hmm. And so, to you know, to you've got your best cases of why he might have disappeared and how, and you have your worst cases. And sadly, because it happened on the campus of St. John's University, home to the St. John's Monastery. You know, the likelihood that it was something toward the evil side 
you know, rather than the innocent mistake side is more likely. Um, and that's just based on the history of the place. Yeah. But we don't know. You know, in the end, we don't know. And that's the, that's the sad part for the family, and that's the sad part for his friends. You know, hopefully, it, you know, someday they'll have an answer. They'll have some closure. And hopefully, you know, the people who covered it up, the, perp- the people who per- perpetrated his disappearance and the, who helped him get away with it will be held accountable. Right. Right. Let's talk about your website, BehindThePineCurtain.com. How long has that been around, and what? And when you started it, what was the motivation? Obviously, you've been dealing with this uh, since your abuse in the early 1980s and then coming forward in 1990-91, but how long has the website been around, and what was the final motivator to get it started? It was 2002 when I actually created the website at that point it was called the abuse disclosure project and i was just tired of of well tired of two things i was exhausted from listening to the stories of victims number one Mm -hmm. but i was tired of the attention that wasn't being paid to the problem at st john's and so i created the website in an effort to lead people, to direct them to this resource. When they called me or they searched the Internet, they would find it. I knew that people were seeking, seeking answers, and they had no place to turn. I mean, they could call me if they knew me, and they you know, could research it in one way or the other and somehow come up with my name. But I had spoken with enough people, and enough people had contacted me that I knew that a resource was necessary, and so I just I put together a website of, uh, I think at that point it was eight or nine perpetrators. And I was aware way back in the early 90s of of these eight perpetrators and of well over 40 victims. And I think at that point in the early 2000s, I was still dealing with that about the same number, eight, Mm -hmm. nine perpetrators, 40 or 50 victims. And I had no idea it was going to take off and become almost 100 perpetrators and well over 300 victims um, but you know that that's the website was there as a resource mm-hmm. for people who needed answers and who late at night had just needed somebody to talk to or they just needed something to see that validated their experience and that's that's the number one word that I tend to use when talking about sexual abuse is validation victims many times don't need a lawsuit don't need a settlement don't need counseling. They simply need validation, knowing that what happened to them did actually happen, that it happened to others, that they're not alone, they didn't bring it on themselves. And a lot of times that's all they need. And that's mm-hmm. all I wanted to provide was just a validation for those people who needed it. Mm-hmm. So as time went on, people would, would come to the website and they'd, they'd tell me their story, send me a message, give me a call asked that I call them, and, and the, the list got bigger, and the number of victims increased, and it really became something that, uh, you know, it's a sad project. You know, every time yeah. you add a, a perpetrator's name, um, every time you, know, you speak to just another victim or to a victim's um, family member, you know, it's, 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 it's amazing the stories that I've heard. There were two, there were, there's a, there, I'm thinking of a family. They have three boys in the family. They actually have more family members, but I don't want to give anything away here. Mm-hmm. But I understand. Talk about these three boys. Well, two of the boys, um, I, I'll go back to the third boy. A, a, a kid calls me up. You know, I call him a kid because in a lot of ways he's still a kid because he hasn't mm-hmm. dealt with his abuse. And because of that, he's he's in a place in his life where he hasn't grown up past the age of his abuse. And that happens to a lot of people. So I say, and this kid calls up. And he says, you know, I've I had this incident with this priest and I don't know what to do. So we talk about it for a while and I listen to him. And he, he gives me the name of the priest. And he says, listen, I'd love to come forward and tell my story. I'd like to do but I can't use my name because I come from this family. I say, that's fine. You don't have to use your name. Um, he says, well, I, I'm, I'm concerned because I, you know, I don't, 
I've got I've got these brothers, and I'm just concerned about them. And I don't know if the concern was that something happened to them. I think he he suggested to me that something might have happened, but he was worried about going through the whole process. He wanted to be as many people do. He wanted to be anonymous. Um, and I said, certainly, whether you come talk to me or you go see an attorney or you talk to a therapist, whatever you do, you know, you your confidentiality is, is that's that's part of the puzzle. That's that's assured if you mm-hmm. need that to happen. And so I said, you know, feel comfortable doing whatever you want to do. And he said that, you know, he was worried about that. And he thought, you know what, I, I can't go forward. In, in the end, he said, I can't go forward with this because I'm just afraid that my name will be made public. But what I couldn't tell him was that his brothers had already gone through the process. Oh, my. Oh, my. Both of them, both of those brothers had already settled claims against oh the Abbey. Oh, my gosh. And here he was, what a story. brother in the family, and he couldn't come forward and never did come forward because he didn't want his name to get out there. And I couldn't tell him anything. No. I just had to say, you know, that's just, you, whenever you're ready to talk, I'm willing to talk. I said, there are other resources out there. And, and you know, he said, you know, maybe call me back sometime. I haven't spoken to him since, but, I, mm-hmm. you know, it's no different from a family there's a family in the area, and I've spoken with four members of the family. None of the four know that the other three have spoken with me. All four were abused by the same priest. None of the four knows each other has been abused. And it's stories like that that talk to, speak to. I mean, here, here's here's an interesting piece to this puzzle. This may help you understand okay. sexual, sexual abuse better. Mm-hmm. The number one reason I feel why people don't report sexual abuse and come forward is because they're afraid to, of shaming their parents. Oh, I'm going to wait till my parents die, and then I'll do something about it. Oh, it would break my mother's heart. Oh, my parents are so Catholic. Mm-hmm. Children do not want to embarrass or shame their parents. They will, they will take on all the crap that comes along with being a victim and moving toward being a survivor but if it means that their parents will be shamed or embarrassed they won't do it and because of it they're suffering from issues with alcohol with drugs marital issues uh, problems with their jobs and in some cases sexual abuse of their own doing they've they've grown yeah. up with sexual with with problems with sexuality because they didn't deal with their own sexuality appropriately or they were taught about sexuality from the wrong person and as a result they've they've got on this path that that is dysfunctional in all those aspects of life and one of the things that I've tried to do with my website and my advocacy is to say that you know we need to break these cycles for all of those five reasons, I don't. Yeah. If if we can keep somebody from drinking or from doing drugs, or we can help their marriage, or we can help them be more peaceful in their job, and by heaven's sakes, if we can keep them from acting inappropriately with another person, minor or otherwise, then we need to do that. So that's the that's the root of what I do is I try to take people off of this cycle of dysfunction that they're on and to see that there's another way and only by providing them with validation for their own stories and to let them know that they're not alone um, and to let them know that the truth is is it's such a gift Mm -hmm. and you know and, and once we find out the truth and and the truth about what happened to josh is more likely to be told if we know the truth about St. John's. But the truth right. about St. John's is so buried and is so far from the surface. And if that's what's required in order to bring Josh back or to find out what happened to him, we'll never know what happened to him. No. It's only once St. John's decides that it's time to tell the truth, to, to come with forward, full disclosure. It's only then that Josh other bodies in quotes that have been buried you know that we find out what happens to them 
What is the most recent graduate of St. John's that has approached you about being abused? It was a gentleman who graduated from St. John's University this past spring. He was the uh, recipient of sexual harassment slash misconduct during his freshman year. He reported it. It went up the chain. His perpetrator was pulled and was retrained and was placed back in the dorm. And my understanding is works there again this year. So that is the most recent episode of misconduct of sexual harassment or you know things that are inappropriate on campus before then uh, one of the priests mcdonald acted inappropriate this is the gentleman by the way that had confessed to having over 200 sexual encounters many of them overseas and many of them with underage kids who wore numbers so that you could pick them out of a lineup and say i'd like that one today. Oh and he was inappropriate, touched the crotch area, and played with the zipper of one of the employees at St. John's a couple of years ago. And as a result, he was shipped off campus to Missouri and to a place in, I believe it was Dittmer, Missouri, to a facility that is nicknamed Club Ped, because that's where the worst of the Catholic pedophile priests go and served some time there and then they sent him to a nursing home in northern Minnesota which I had the uh, opportunity to visit just after he left and they said oh he's a great man we enjoyed having him here and I said well were you aware that he is a multiple accused perpetrator of sexual abuse against minors and the lady's jaw dropped oh, I had no idea. Um, I'm not sure where he is now. I've heard he's back on campus. I hope that's not the case. But there are many perpetrators, many credibly accused men, perpetrators of sexual misconduct against minors and others who are on campus right now, walking, interacting with students. St. John's won't tell you their names. They won't provide pictures. Uh, we don't know who they are. I know who they are. But uh, mm. the... the general public, general population, the kids who are visiting for um, soccer camp, kids who are there for the football games, kids who are there for the choir, people who are in the seats at church. They don't know who these men are. Um, and they're allowed to take vehicles, drive to local uh, St. Cloud establishments, do their shopping and come home. The oversight is poor at best, and the community should be frightened. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's, it is a, it, it's not a question of if it will happen again, it's a question of when. They will reoffend. These are, these are serious sexual perpetrators. So the preponderance of the evidence would say that probably right as we're talking, something's going on at St. John's University right now. Well, I say yes, but I, I qualify by saying this. If, if you're on campus, your son or daughter is on campus now, and more likely your son or daughter is going to be the, the victim here. But if, if they're at the uh, cafeteria right now or mm. in the locker room at the gym or mm. walking campus looking at the, at, the, at the leaves turning, there's a monk nearby, more likely than not, in one of those places. And even if your son isn't, being fondled right now, he's still being looked at inappropriately by one of these gentlemen who has been charged with being a good community member and took vows as part of their priesthood to, do, to be a good man, and instead they're undressing your son, and that's inappropriate. So is a child, is a student, is somebody being victimized at St. John's right now? Yeah, they are. But... You know, I, I, I mm -hmm. would hope that um, it's happening on the sidewalk and that it's it's something that doesn't involve you know, the touching, the inappropriate touching or the grooming or that they're not 
getting them, you know, providing them with alcohol so that they can, you know, compromise them later. I can tell you this. Is somebody on campus right now being groomed? Mm -hmm. Yes. Will that grooming result in misconduct? I hope not. I can't say mm -hmm. definitely not. I hope not. But are they being groomed? I'm going to say 100% yes, because what these men do is groom. That is their MO. That is their way of life. And they... That's what they do. They groom. They groom all day long. Was Joshua Gimon being groomed? Yeah, he was. Was his groomer serious about doing something? Probably. Um, did his, his groomer have the opportunity? We'll never know. But certainly, because that's what these guys do, mm -hmm. is groom. That's their day. Their day is, who can I groom? Whether it be somebody in their own monastic community you know, or a student or the son or daughter of one of their friends. Yeah, they're groomers. That's what they do. So that's an important thing to, to, to think about, too. That's what these guys do. And it's just, you know, the, the guy who got me back in the 80s, he was grooming at least three. My two best friends, he was grooming them. And he probably had, well, he had a student body of, you know, several dozen kids to groom. And then they narrow it down. And at some point it becomes, who's the vulnerable kid that I can now take advantage of? I spent all of this time grooming these dozens or these dozen or this half dozen, and they've narrowed it down, and then they're just looking for opportunity. The grooming is going on. The grooming is there. Now they're just waiting for opportunity. They're waiting for somebody to be vulnerable. And when they're vulnerable, there's an opportunity. They've been properly groomed. They will strike again. It's just a matter of time. Patrick Marker, tell everyone uh, how they could find you, how to contact you, your information, anything you want to put out there uh, before we uh, sign off on this interview for today. Well, the website that I started back in 2002 is now called Behind the Pine Curtain. It's, it's meant to be a resource for victims. I, I simply try to validate their stories try to tell the stories that St. John's doesn't want the public to hear, whether it be sexual abuse or elder abuse, um, their fundraising uh, issues, um, the fact that their beloved coach John Gallardi knew about sexual abuse back in the 50s and 60s, and that like him and other faculty members just didn't do enough or anything about it. And because of that, the entire community has been affected the entire community needs to be healed but the only way that healing takes place is if we get to the truth and I've merely tried to provide with the website a starting point for that truth so mm -hmm. behind the pine curtain is where people should go mm -hmm. I look forward to any input and feedback and help that uh, anybody wants to provide um, it's been a it's it's been a real honor to speak with victims and their families and to have that trust put into me uh, put in me so that uh, these people can be relieved of their own stories and guilt and shame and and, and uh, really it's, it's just mm -hmm. an opportunity for for me to give back uh, yeah. and I appreciate the ability to do so do you have email is that the uh, only thing you're prepared to give out at this time not oh, force no 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 there's a contact page on the okay, website great. my phone number's on there i think my email address is on there and there's certainly okay. a contact page you can send me a message anytime great so uh, patrick thank you for coming forward and thank you for everything that you've done since to help all of these victims and their families thank you so sure. much yeah you bet thanks for being on unfound sure i hope you can now see why I said before the interview started that I was just going to allow Patrick to tell his own story. Of course, this goes back to the beginning of the interview where he talked about his own abuse on the St. John's campus going back to the early 80s. Patrick Marker is the kind of person who I try to get for you for the show. Once again, as I've told you, I'm just a reporter. It's a guy like Patrick who is out there who is researching this stuff. He's uncovering 
information that the school is trying to cover up to the point where he got kicked off the campus of the school that he graduated from. These are the kinds of people that I like to bring to you. I guess a good, another good example would be Lee Clifton and my interview I did with her for the disappearance of Kelly Rothwell. These are the types of people doing the real work out there. And they should be noticed for what they're doing because they are providing a huge public service. And this show is just a way for them to get their message out. Now, as to what Patrick and I talked about, covered a lot of ground in that interview. Just some highlights and maybe a couple points that weren't brought up. First, you should know that on some sites, Joshua's disappearance has tried to be connected to some other disappearances on campuses where young men got drunk fell into the water, and drowned. And in fact, I guess about eight years ago, there was this whole thing called the smiley face killers. Do you remember that? It's a theory that I dismissed at the time, and I continued to dismiss it. Not just the theory of the smiley face killers, but the idea that Josh's disappearance was connected to these other young men in the Wisconsin-Minnesota area who fell into a body of water and drowned, I don't think his disappearance has anything to do with any of theirs. There's no proof that Joshua was so drunk that he would have fallen into a body of water and drowned. And it should be noted that those bodies of water near the campus and on campus were searched, first and foremost. That has to be remembered. However, in thinking about Josh's case... I am reminded of a couple other cases that I know of that might be relevant to Joss's disappearance that have nothing to do with the sex abuse scandal that has gone on on the St. John's University campus for 50 years. I think of the story of Kelly Nash. Do you know this story? It happened in 2015, early 2015, January 5th, as a matter of fact. Kelly Nash was a young man, seemingly had everything to live for, working in family's uh, construction company, no money worries, seemed to be a pretty good guy. Back on January 5th of 2015, he decided to stay up late while his girlfriend went to bed. Next day, he was gone. A few days later, he was found in a lake a few miles away with a bullet wound, and he was dead. His truck was still at his house. Police started to investigate and found that they found a video shot taken from a convenience store that showed a lonely man walking down the street, down the road in the middle of the night, about the time that would have been that Kelly Nash could have conceivably left his house and walked down to that lake. As you can imagine, there are some conspiracy theories regarding all of this. And maybe his girlfriend had something to do with it. Maybe he caught a couple intruders outside and they murdered him. And it's not him walking in that video because you can't really see the face of the individual on that street that night. But Kelly Nash's story is not the only one where people who seemingly have everything to live for suddenly walk away. And in fact, if you go to any missing person site where it's just case after case after case, you'll find that that is more common than you'd realize. So it's possible that that happened in Joshua's case. Possible. We have to keep that theory open. Another possibility, and I think of the case of Morgan Harrington, even though she was a young woman, but she was on a college campus, went to a Metallica concert, found herself outside of the venue, couldn't get back in. She told her friends, I'll figure something out. She ended up being picked up by a man who had a violent history, ended up killing her, and he was caught a few years later. He had been connected to another rape in another city, and then his DNA was connected to 
Morgan Harrington. In fact, he was connected to another disappearance uh, as well. So people getting into the wrong car with the wrong person on college campuses happen. That's probably another phenomenon that we don't realize happens as much as it does. So we have to be open to that. Although the difference between Joshua's case and Morgan's case is that Morgan was on the campus of Virginia Tech in a major city in Virginia, whereas Joshua was on a very small campus in a much smaller city. We also have to consider that maybe Joshua met with foul play on the St. John's campus completely by accident, and that was talked about during the interview with Patrick Marker, that he might have been hit by a car. And what I would urge you to do is to go to Google Maps and go to Street View and cruise around the St. John's campus as much as you can using that, and you'll be able to go step-by-step the path that Joshua would have taken. And as I said in the interview, I bet that's a pretty dark walk at night. And probably be very easily if Josh was walking on the street, the car comes up, hits him. Maybe it is somebody from the uh, from the university. Maybe it's not. Somebody who might want to cover that up. So there's several possibilities. In addition to the idea that Joshua was, was doing research into what had gone on at St. John's for all those decades. And then somebody wanted him not to do that anymore. But as is always the case, I leave that up to you. Maybe you have a theory that is outside anything that was discussed on this show. If so, I'd love to hear about it. This is a case, Joshua's case, is one that I've known about for a long time, but only more recently... Did I hear about the abuse that went on the campus where he disappeared? And it certainly adds a disturbing element to the entire story. But once again, if you have any information, please contact the Stearns County Sheriff's Department. Thank you for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Unfound Podcast. Please subscribe at Podomatic and iTunes. I'm Ed Denzel. And this has been Unfound.